Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hey folks, and welcome to the Art of War. We're doing it again, talking tactics and strategy with the best players in the game. I'm your host, Steve Joel. I talk a good game, but I don't always play a good game. So here to make sure we're asking all the right questions as current number two ranked player in the ITC, the best sisters player in the world, winner of events such as the Lone Star Open and the Dallas Open, John Lennon. Is it just a Texas thing? Are you good in Texas? You know, uh, it would be cooler if I lived in Texas, but apparently I have to buy a plane ticket anytime I want to win a major. Yeah, that's right. It is. But former Texas A&M, right? So at least you're going back to the old old hometown to win these things. Um, Now, here's how the show works. Every week we talk to a tournament winner or top player about an army that they have had success with at a big event. And we do it in two great episodes. In part one, we're going to break down the list. What's in it, how it works what's not in it, and why maybe. It'll be a free lesson in list building. And then in part two, we look at the matchups. So whatever army you play, you're going to learn a heap in part two when John and our guests go toe-to-toe. Episode two is for subscribers only. So if you like what you hear in part one, go to theartofwar40k.com and subscribe for the rest of the show. I'm excited about this week's guest, I've got to say it. He's the number one ranked Thousand Sons player in the world, and he took them to top spot at the Normal Blokes GT this year, according to Down Under Pairings. He has a tournament win ratio of 86%, including the last 18 games in a row, if those numbers are up to date. From Brisbane, Australia, Liam Hackett. Welcome, sir. Good morning, guys. Wow, that is quite an introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, listen, before I hand over to John, I want to mention that uh, you and Adam Camilleri did a great breakdown of the new T-Suns Codex on Art of War Down Under uh, so for Thousand Suns players, go get that when you're done with this. This is not a breakdown of the codex. We're going to do list building and then and then matchups. Uh, that that three hours with Adam, man, you must love talking 40k, Liam. <laughs> I think that's a criticism you could uh, put to Adam and me. I think both of us <laughs> like to talk. Um, before we get cracking talking about my list, if you don't mind, I would love to shamelessly plug and play my own podcast. That's okay. Of course. Um, of course. Uh, in Australia, me and a couple other guys, uh, Denise, Luke, and Jordan, do a podcast called The Normal Blokes. We're a podcast dedicated to improving the competitive 40K experience. Uh, we focus on both competitive content and issues like sportsmanship and how to prep for events and travel, and we'd love anyone to check us out. We talk a lot of smack. There is definitely swear words in that podcast, but we have a lot of fun doing it. Thanks very much for having me on the show today, guys. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, mate. Uh, now, also, you're operating on about four hours sleep to do this for us, so a big thank you for that. Uh, I guess Three and a half thing... and a big cup of coffee. <laughs> That'll do. It's nothing you're not used to, right? So, no, uh, I'm used to it. Let's, let's run through the list. Tell us what you got. So um, the Thousand Suns list that I've been playing at the last couple of events is pretty much the same with a few very minor uh, tech variations. Uh, The last version and the one that I'm most satisfied with was uh, actually not the one I played at the Normal Blokes GT, but the the two subsequent events um, that I won as well. So it's a single battalion where I really doubled down on the concept of just mass obsec models with a little bit of melee push to shift objectives. So it's a single cult of time battalion it's got araman on it uh, araman in it with all the damage spells on a disc it's got a single exalted sorcerer and he's just got the 
the new dark matter crystal, GW loves changing the names of their relics. I believe it's called the umbralific crystal now. And he's got um, immaterial echo warlord trait, which is the, if you roll a nine plus for psychic powers, he manifests one additional spell and that's undeniable. He's uh, got the buff spells. So four up invoke, weaver of fates, and then glamour of zinc, neck one to hit. I then got 40 Rubik Marines, four units of 10. I, I went for the big squads for a couple of reasons we'll talk about later. Each squad's got uh, a Soul Reaper Cannon, and every single squad knows Temporal Surge, GW's lovely new name for Warp Time. Um, did that for a few reasons, and I'd love to chat about that a bit later. And then there's a big 10-man squad of Scarab Occult Terminators. This is not really um, unique. The sergeant's got the chapter, or not the chapter, the um, uh, Sorcerer's Upgrade. Um, Rights of Coalescence, which means any wounded models heal at the start of your command phase. He's also got Warp Time, um, Temporal Surge. That squad's fully upgraded with all the bells and whistles, the two Soul Reaper cannons and the two Hellfire missile launchers. Um, love how GW spelt fire in that word. And then there's two units of five Chaos Spawn, uh, big, juicy Chaos Spawn. And if you've seen any of my stream games, my Spawn look like giant Mike Wazowski's from Monsters, Inc., which is hilarious. And then there's two uh, Chaos Rhinos to sort of round the list out. Um, so it's a bit of a, a bit of a hodgepodge, a very large number of obsec models, um, and some juicy cult of time tech. That's that's my list so far. Can I ask a couple of basic questions before John kicks off on the more technical stuff? Uh, what does cult of time mean? What is what is that cult? Well, cult of time means that I can insert time-related memes into all of my lists, which is very fun. <laughs> um, but but the tactical reason that I play cult of time is that I think they've got one of the best spells. Uh, available to T-Suns. It means that every Psyker in the list gains a spell called Time Flux, which is a warp charge, six power, goes off on a five because T-Suns have plus one to cast, which restores a model uh, to a unit within six, including your own unit. This is exceptionally valuable on my unit, the 10 Scarabacult Terminators. Obviously, every time you get a 40-point model back, uh, it's very, very valuable. But then T-Suns also have a strat for if you roll high enough for a Psychic Power, you can restore a second model. So I actually found that in most games... Um, I would be able to get two models back reasonably consistently every single turn. And so we've got talking Rubik Marines, Scarab Occult Terminators. These sort of allow you to pretty consistently get back a significant portion of your army. Uh, in some wow. games, I got back uh, 250, 300 points worth of models um, in a game, which which matters uh, over the course, especially when you're playing a sort of grindy attrition game, which this list leads into. I do not want to play against that. That sounds like it just sucks. Um, Liam, uh, tell us how many CP you've got and how important is it to have CP for this army and for the use of strats through the game? Yeah, so this list has 12 CP. It's just a single battalion. I didn't spend any on extra relics or wall of traits or anything fancy like that. Um, having the CP was really, really important because um, in addition to the 12 that you start with and the 5 that you get in your command phases, uh, you can use Kabbalistic Rituals, 4 points to do um, Echoes from the Warp to get another CP. So in most turns, I would be actually getting a second CP um, putting you up to 20 or even 22 CP throughout a 40k game. I found that the CP was really, really important because, um, well, firstly, T-Sun's damage is a little bit of a problem. And so having the CP to do plus one to wound or shoot an extra shot with bolt weapons really sort of tipped me over the edge of being relevant in a lot of sort of situations. But also um, the neg one damage strat was something that I really, really wanted to use very, very frequently. Um, and so that having the big pile of um, CP uh, helped me stay afloat in a lot of different games. It also means that I 
don't have to make tough budgeting decisions. If you've got a big pool of 22 CP, um, you'd be surprised what stratagems you do, like um, the cut them down stratagem when people fall back from combat and you roll the dice for every model and a six, you take a mortal wound, one of the basic rulebook straps. I don't think I've really used that in any of my other lists, but I surprisingly find that by turn four, if I have 10 CP or so, I'm more than comfortable to do things that I wouldn't otherwise do. Right. Can you uh, also explain to us how the... Uh, and the only thing I can compare it to off the top of my head is the uh, Sisters Miracle Dice. Can you explain to us how the system works with gaining points in a use-it-or-lose-it kind of point system each turn? How does that system go for T-Sun? Oh, the, the, the Cabal points. Yeah. So um, the Cabal points are basically a system where for each character, um, basically each Psyker in your army, you get a certain number of points. So the, the more important the character, you get more of them, and then the units give you one. So in this list, Araman and the Exalted Sorcerer give you three, which gives you six, and then each of the squads, so the Rubik Marines and the Scarab Occult Terminators, give you one each too. So the current list with the Chaos Spawn that I've been running has 11 Cabal points. You then kind of got a, a bit of a shop, like a like an EA Play Store that you can sort of spend your Cabal points at each turn. They come back every Psychic Phase, so you have no downside to actually using them. And they let you do a variety of different cool abilities, like you gain a, the one I mentioned before, uh, Echoes from the Warp, costs you four. It's uh, a Psychic action, and if you do it, you get a CP. There's other ones like um, uh, you can draw a line of sight for Psychic Powers from another Psyker, not the actual person manifesting spells, which I use a lot. Add six to the range of Psychic Spells, do D3 extra mortal wounds. Um, these are all the cheaper ones, and they go all the way up to making spells undeniable, manifesting the same witchfire power twice, and then adding dice to rolls. I actually found the Cabal points to be way more important than I thought they would be. Like when I first read them, I did sort of anticipate they'd be a minor buff to sort of aid me in some games. But I actually found the number of times that you roll one lower than the psychic test you require, or you verse, for example, Sisters of Battle, or armies with deny strats, and you really desperately need to make a spell undeniable or just add one to the roll, it comes up very, very often. And the Cabal points let me interact with those armies or those bad rolls without actually spending any CP. Uh, it was it was very relevant, and I actually really like the system. I think it's quite fluffy. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks. I just wanted to make sure people understood how that system worked before we went into all of the other big questions that John has for you. <laughs> absolutely so i kind of want to just um start off by asking what does this army normally look like on the tabletop obviously you're going to change things you know based on the matchups and we'll talk about specific matchups in part two but i'm kind of curious what does your army i guess look like on the tabletop like what's your what's plan a when you uh when you're writing a list thinking about a tournament before you actually see what your opponent's doing yeah so plan a for this army is um primary domination and stranglehold the secondary and I, that, I, I pretty much invariably approach my games with that kind of mindset. And the way this army goes about that is, uh, and the rhinos are actually really, really important for that kind of plan. So a Rubik Marine unit in a rhino, um, they now move six, which is nice, GW. Thanks for giving me an even number. Um, so they disembark from the rhinos nine. They then warp time themselves, and I can make it auto-cast or undeniable. So I, I can very much rely on getting the warp time. So they move 15 inches at the rhino. So if you think about a Dawn of War deployment, I'll basically be having a rhino on each side of my deployment, like on the left and on the right. And then each turn, I'll be yeeting a 10-man unit of Rubik Marines across the table, moving them 15. In most missions like Surround and Destroy or even Overrun, with an advance or even a charge, 
it's very easy for me to get on my opponent's objectives on that side of the table with a 10-man OPSEC unit of Marines. Um, oftentimes, those units are able to be shifted, but I have four units. So I can actually repeat that process for most of the game whilst just sort of staying in, in the ruins myself. The occult termies will pick one side of the table and just kind of bully people away. They're very rarely going to be aggressive. They're more there to be sort of reactive. So the Rubik Marines are very aggro and the Scarab Occult Terminators are very defensive. Okay. I like it. And, you know, I, I often, you know, kind of criticize the, uh, the Scarab Occult Terminators as being a CP dump, but you've kind of already brought that up and, you, you know, having about 20 CP to play with in a game, that that's definitely enough. I'm not going to be able to drain you that fast, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah. Honestly, you know, I, I was expecting you to have, you know, a bucket load of, you know, Warlord Traits and Relics because Thousand Suns had a, quite a few ones that were interesting, to say the least. Um, I am kind of curious. Can you uh, dive a little bit deeper into the Warlord Traits and Relics you chose and why you thought that only yeah. those ones were the ones that would make the cut? So um, Warlord Traits is an easy answer. Relics is a little bit more complicated. So regarding Warlord Traits, I find that um, you're right. There are a, very, a number of very spicy Warlord traits for T-Suns, especially some of the cult-specific ones, a lot of those lend themselves to building, I don't know, Smash characters, which I don't think T-Suns do well enough to be a valid option to pursue. Um, so I kind of decided to double down on the attitude of if you're going to do something, do it well. Don't try and do something in a mediocre way. So I kind of left a lot of the Smash characters behind. I kind of extended that attitude to the Demon Princes as well. I think T-Suns do have some viable Demon Prince builds, some really good ones. Um, but I didn't think that merely push, especially from a character, was something this list required. So all of those relic combos like the Conniving Plate and Neg 1 Damage, these are all things that sort of lean themselves to a Demon Prince build, which is not something this list needed or wanted. So most of the relics and Warlord traits were off the table there. As far as tech goes, there are some other relics that would be valuable. The issue in list construction was, first and foremost, I only have two characters, um, Araman and the Exalted Sorcerer. And I approached relics from a CP expenditure perspective. And I thought, hey, look, I would rather take one relic and maximize my CP for the reasons you mentioned before. Yes, the, the Occult Terminators and even Rubik Marines sometimes can be CP dumps. Um, and so I only took the relic that I thought was the most valuable, the, the actual game-changing relic, which was the crystal, the ability to, in my command phase, just remove a unit and put it anywhere on the table nine inches away from my opponent. Something that I, I found just the threat of was very, very relevant. And anyone who plays the Cult of Duplicity, which is very um, popular, where it gives you a warp charge eight psychic power to, to do the same thing, basically, will know that oftentimes the threat of it happening is more of a deterrent for your opponent than it actually happening. So I found in my practice games that that specific relic was, even if I, I actually don't use it, ironically, in some games. Some games I find my positioning and where I put my models is sufficient to get the job done. But having the crystal there, like turns three, turns four, make people defend their backfield with resources they might not have or screen out even when it's actually not going to be super relevant to the primary mission because they fear a unit of Terminators coming into their backfield. Just to kind of um, explain something as well, one thing I found um, really, really valuable was the Umbralific Crystal combo with the Cult of Time. I mentioned before 
the uh, stressing people out and making them defend their backfield. And I think that's quite unique to playing Cult of Time and why I really think it's the best T-Suns Cult. And I've been playing it consistently since the Codex came out. That power to restore a model in a unit, obviously it happens in the psychic phase and the umbralific crystal goes off in the command phase and you replace the unit in the reinforcement step in the movement phase. Meaning when you restore a Terminator, for example, that's a 40 millimeter base, which adds about 3.9 inches-ish of movement to a unit. So you actually go from a nine-inch charge off the deep strike to a little bit less than a six. You need a five on the dice is what you actually need to make combat. Five or a six, I'm pretty sure. So you go from a back... You can basically teleport from your board edge to their board edge and super reliably make combat if they've hurt any of your Terminators. And oftentimes, I'll be baiting certain armies to actually shoot the Terminators and kill one or two so that I have that tech available to me. I feel like it's and and guys like John very often talk about uh, having to get your opponents to make bad decisions, and you're left in a situation where do you shoot the Terminators because you can't leave those guys just walking around the board doing whatever they want, or but then if you do, you're kind of gifting you that opportunity as well, right? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that is really nasty. Um, I actually I was going to ask about that because you know the potential to get two models back. It, it's in the psychic phase, not the command phase, but. It feels almost Necron-esque in the amount of shenanigans that you can pull with it. And uh, you know, if you're going to play uh, you know, an army with scheming and duplicity in it, you have to have just master-level tricks in there to make it all work, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I love that. Uh, I really love that teleport and then grow the models back. Um, I've seen that pulled off with Space Marine Apothecaries when you can like redeploy a unit, but mm. Thousand Suns do that so much better than Marines do because you can just do that every turn. You don't have to wait a turn. Yep. That immediate redeployability, that is super clutch. I actually really like that. But, you know, kind of like Steve was saying, it, it's baiting your opponent to shoot them, but, you know, the, um, the amount of discipline it takes to look at an army, not fire a gun just to prevent a, a cool deep strike play, like, ah, is that even worth it? Like, I, th- I think you still have to shoot, even when people know they're making a mistake. The alternative is just too much. Like, I can't just not shoot a Terminator unit that's walking towards me. If you walk Terminators towards me and I never shoot you, I'll lose anyway. <laughs> uh, it, you, you definitely will. And I think the, um, the thing that this list kind of doubles down on and what I mentioned before was that I decided to focus on the things that I think T-Suns are good at rather than trying to tech into the things that other codexes do better. And because of that, I've got, you know, my 50 obsec bodies, 10 of which being Terminators. That trick that I mentioned with the restoring models and taking people's primary objectives, that's not just relevant for the Scarab Occults. Because obviously, sometimes people do have that discipline. Sometimes people just go, screw it, I'm going to shoot the Terminators anyways. But the same thing applies to Rubik Marines. You can always teleport the Rubik Marines and heal one or two models and then make a charge and steal people's objectives. With Neg 1 to hit and 4-up Inbo with Psychic Powers, which I can make very, very reliable, even a 10-man Rubik Marine unit is very tough to shift, uh, especially for armies that lack damage to in combat, um, which, uh, you know, in a number of different matchups, just taking a primary objective for a win is going to shift the game to a point where your opponent has to be a lot more aggressive just to make back those points. And it really reinforces what you said before about forcing them to make mistakes. This list kind of presents a problem for people in that you can kill it. It's not unkillable. You can also outshoot it and you can outhit it. But the reality is it's a, it's 130. That's not, that's a lie. It's 110 obsec fearless marine bodies followed up by 10 Chaos Spawn, who I can move 14 inches through walls because I can double move them. 
And by the time you've actually dealt with a lot of those threats, the primary has blown out of proportion and secondaries I've scored very, very high on a lot. Like the, the T-Suns I find are a points factory, which I'd love to talk about a bit more later. And I sort of find that even in games where I'm getting tabled, I'm getting 80 points plus, which is presenting a big problem for an opponent who might have decided to play a bit more cagey to keep their stuff safe. Can I ask about your uh, HQs? Only two HQs is interesting in the in the modern game. You very often see people, particularly Space Marines players, and loading up on HQs. And and we've already discussed the Warlord traits and the relics. You don't need those. So is that why only two HQs? Because you don't need to load them up with the good stuff. You only need those guys to do what you got to do. Um, yeah, but also I sort of find that T Suns are in a unique position where their HQs kind of fulfill multiple roles at once. Like I didn't really feel like I was lacking tech. Like for example. Araman and the Exalted Sorcerers also have a, a Captain or a, a Chaos Lord aura of reroll ones to hit. So it's almost like I have four HQs anyway. I have two Psyker characters that are very important and do their own roles, but I also have characters for reroll to hit. And a number of reasons for taking more characters would be to take a wider variety of Psychic Powers. But I sort of found that having stratagems to change Psychic Powers, manifest additional spells, and the fact that every squad has a Psyker in it too, kind of made having more characters a little bit redundant. It also means that secondaries like Assassinate and even Abhor the Witch are actually a bit more challenging to do than if I had four or even five characters, which is what I see in some lists. Yeah, nice. I appreciate that. The the Abhor the Witch is something I was going to ask about because it is obviously when you you look at T-Suns and Grey Knights, you go, okay, I'm going to take Abhor the Witch. And people are dropping yeah. their librarians and their rune priests and their uh, psychers from their list. If they've only got one, they're dropping them just so they can do that now against your army do people do people get baited into taking the wrong secondaries against you uh, things like abhor the witch yeah so um one of the really uh tactical parts that um i'd love to have a debate with john about later is the t-sun <laughs> strat uh, i i forget what it's actually called forgive me uh but it allows you after you know your opponent's secondaries to change your a secondary of yours now that's really, really relevant um, with the Abhor the Witch question because quite often I get to games and people will look at my army and go, okay, I'm going to take no prisoners, I'm going to take Abhor the Witch, and then I'm going to take something else. And then that's really awesome for me because I pretty invariably take the same secondaries, but I will then change one of my secondaries to something like to the last. So then me just staying alive wins me the game because they can get close to zero for both of those secondaries. I can very much just sit on my two objectives and get 40-ish for primary, and then get 15 for to the last, um, get a number of points for mutate landscape, and do okay on another secondary like banners, for example. And they sort of find that it's a super boring game of 40k, but they've <laughs> lost in the pick secondaries step of the game. So people do get baited, and my ability to change secondaries comes up quite a lot in my games. Or even just the, the sort of uh, mind games that come with uh, when you tell you, I, I find being transparent about this sort of stuff when I play games and playing by intent is something I'm, is really important to me. So I will tell my opponents just so you know, I can change my secondaries after I know yours. Uh, and that, that will often st either stress people out or make them pick weird and wacky secondaries sometimes, which always confuses me um, because they're worried that I might change to something else. The other thing with right. the Abhor the Witch is that, um, the Rhinos and the Chaos Spawn don't give it up. And in a lot of games, they're the units that go forwards first if I decide to be a bit more conservative. And so people find that, oh, I'm actually not bleeding Abhor as much as you might think. Other things make T-Suns weird to interact with regarding Abhor. They're all fearless. 
So if you shoot a unit of Marines and you kill nine of them, but the sorcerer is alive, you actually get no points for a pull the witch whatsoever. And then I can restore models and regenerate squads and things like that. So that becomes a bit of an issue. This army also gives up 14 abhor if you table it, if you kill both my characters and all the Rubik Marines and the Terminators. That's a lie. Sorry, it gives up 16. But if you are at that point where you're getting, you're approaching maxing out that secondary, I've been tabled anyway, which is a pretty rare occurrence. Right. Now, John will uh, know much more about this than me. I'm really here to speak on behalf of the mid-tier player, but just <laughs> it, it, it seems like it seems like in my mind that taking uh, no prisoners and Abhor the Witch against your army would be, would feel like, to me anyway, a mistake because, uh, as you mentioned at the start, you're not out-punching some armies, you're not out-shooting other armies. Your big thing is it's just so hard to blim and kill you with all the ability to bring back models and repair wounds and, you know, hide on objectives and just shoot people forward. You're, you're there to live. You're surviving this game more than outdoing the other parts of the game. Is that fair or not? That's very fair. I, I'm pretending that I'm an old, an OG Australian plague bearer list that runs on objectives and just, <laughs> just holds them. That's what I'm pretending. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the right call into this kind of thing. And, and you know what, honestly, it's so easy when you have practiced a thousand suns and a lot of people don't have thousand suns practice against them. Uh, I feel like it's easy to make this mistake, but the right call I think just has to be to only try and take one kill secondary at a time. I always try to do that as my rule of thumb. I think most competitive lists right now try to build two secondaries in that they can pretty reliably score. And then they've got kind of a couple options for a third and they'll they'll pick that or the mission or an opponent one. But I, I, I'm right with you. I've seen players when they think that they have an easy kill one, they throw all of their plans out the window and they just they start seeing red. They're like, oh, I want to take, like, I want to kill him. I'm going to take, you know, abhor the witch. I'm going to take a kill thing. I'm going to take assassinate. And then maybe just maybe they can run you over but if they don't it just all goes sideways absolutely yeah and and i i i actually really like the thousand suns secondary in this context um because yeah i i think thousand suns is an easy one to get baited into seemingly obvious choices like you know you said that your list gives up 14 on a poor the witch how often do people take a poor the witch without asking how many points you give up uh very often uh, to, uh like um a suspiciously large amount of times. Um, and I, in a previous iteration of this list, I actually did give up 14. I, I think this list gives up 16. Apologies for the error before. Um, but in that previous version, um, I had a, I played in an event and I had a number of people who actually tabled me fully, uh, in particular as a orc buggy list. Um, but at the end of the game, um, the, and by tabled, I mean, I, I was nearly wiped out. I had a couple of like single or two man units left. At the end of the game, he got eight for a Paul the Witch, despite having about 400 points of my army left alive on the table, which was very frustrating because I only won that game by five points. And I think the perception being that if you play T-Suns, you're going to get 15 for a Paul the Witch uh, is definitely something a trap that people can fall into. While we're, while we're discussing secondaries, uh, maybe we should ask what kind of secondaries you look at taking when you go into a game. And again, it will depend, obviously, who you're playing and what the situation is. But as John just mentioned, a lot of people build a list thinking one or two secondaries particularly in mind so you're heading for stranglehold you mentioned that yep. uh does wrath of magnus come into play for you that just seems like an auto 15 yeah so um i actually haven't used wrath of magnus in either a practice game or in a tournament game um i wow. think that it it looks it looks really really good on paper but one thing i mentioned before that i really want to double down on is that 
when I play an army like T-Suns, um, which the, the Codex does have problems, I will never try and focus on something that I think the army isn't good at. I'm going to double down on things that I think it is good at. And what it isn't good at is trying to table opponents. I know that that secondary seems like it's an auto-take, but you're going to have turns where people, for example, if you go first, people aren't going to be aggressive enough for you to kill models. You're also going to play games where you're going to want to use all of your defensive psychic powers and movement psychic powers rather than trying to go aggressive in the psychic phase. You also might find that people deny a key damage spell because most of the time what I found is that when you mention how many mortal wounds Araman can do, they focus their deny strats and whatnot on those. And so then you end up getting your other spells off at the expense of perhaps doing some mortal wound damage. I would much rather focus and double down on what T-Suns do well, and that's hold objectives. The mutate landscape secondary is, I think, what you mentioned before. I think it's all, almost at auto 15 in most of my games because it's one of the easiest to do psychic actions. It's warp charge four to start with, and you've got plus one to cast. So it's going off on a three to begin with. Three points per objectives, and your sergeants can do it as well, which I think is just so incredible. And you have a stratagem to do normal psychic powers and do psychic actions with the same model. So you're not even going to be sacrificing a psychic power to actually do it. The other thing as well is that doing this secondary doesn't put you out of position. If you're already doing Stranglehold and you're already playing the primary mission, this secondary just rewards you again for being on objectives. And last but not least, unlike Spread the Sickness or other secondaries, you can do this objective if your opponent is on the point. They don't stop you by being there. And so oftentimes I will... For example, um, Temporal Surge, a squad of Rubik Marines onto an objective, score me Stranglehold, mutate that objective, stop my opponent's primary, and then all of those combined is like a 15 to 20 point in-game swing, and none of it relies on me killing models. I don't have to shift models to do it. It's just sort of doubling down on what I think I'm already good at. Yeah, wow. It is interesting, isn't it, that you've got quite a lot of the time you, you see a, a secondary for your army and you think yeah that's guaranteed man i'm taking that but actually it does it pushes you into a position where maybe you're stretching too far or you're doing things that you don't necessarily want to be doing that's a great a great little lesson in list building thanks mate i love the mindset here because whenever you're going to try to take a board control list as soon as you kind of get away from that i feel like you you know what you get lost in uh get lost in the forest by missing the trees um <laughs> like I, I sometimes see like a lot of lists that try to go like almost all board control and scoring but then they like take one thing that they can't control and then they they cap out kind of on points and then they can get past um i've seen that a lot with like dark angelists for example i'm sure you'll enjoy me clowning on loyalists where like they take all of these plans to get like 15 primary here 15 primary here 15 on the secondary and it gets them all the 80 points but they never quite go all the way and i think you really do if you're going to take that plan you need to make every point you're getting about that and about Well, if I'm going to go mostly board control, why would I stop? Mm-hmm. And one thing that, um, uh, uh, Steve, you mentioned before regarding Aratha Magnus, the other thing that we didn't talk about is the categories that the secondaries are actually in. Um, so the mutate landscape is in the Warpcraft section. The, the, I would argue, probably the least taken category of secondaries uh, in general. I mean, apart from the Grey Knights one, uh, the Purifying Ritual, the T-Suns one's probably the only other Warcraft secondaries you see by and large. Occasionally, I see a list that takes um, Psychic Ritual uh, or Warp Ritual or whatever it's called now. But by and large, this is the only Psychic secondaries I see, which means that I have all of the other categories to pick my secondaries from. A normal game for me 
I'll be taking Stranglehold, Mutate Landscape, and Banners. Because again, all of the units can do banners, uh, including the Exalted Sorcerer sitting at the back, um, the Rubik Marines and the Terminators. And then all of the units can also do uh, Mutate Landscape. So just by being on the objectives and scoring Stranglehold, I'm actually doing all three of my secondaries and the primary mission. Uh, I can get 100 points in a game without killing enemy models. Not saying I would or it would be easy to do, but I can score 100 points without actually interacting with my opponent, which I think is really important for an army like T-Suns that uh, realistically does have problems killing people. With all that obsec, with all the uh, infantry models, are you ever going to look at taking something like Rod or uh, with the speed you've got, able to just launch units across the board, uh, you know, things like engage on all fronts? Are those ever coming into your thought process or have you decided, no, that's just um, too, Rod- it, it stretches too far? Uh, yeah, so good question. Uh, Rod, definitely. Engage, no. So I do definitely consider um, the retrieve data, and I consider that in games, especially against lists like uh, Drakari and a few other games, because um, they can take my banners down like by putting more models on or just shifting me off a particular objective. In most games, I would prefer banners over Rod, purely because it means I can raise a whole bunch of them turn one, especially because a Rubik Marine unit can infiltrate for 2CP with the Risen Rubricate strat. It allows me to raise um, three sometimes even four, depending on the game, banners in my first turn, and then just focus on the rest of the game, and I can sort of ignore it. I take Rod in games so people can take down the banners, or, for example, there's not many objectives available to me early on. Rod is a bit harder for this list because that um, uh, giving up a unit's shooting is oftentimes very relevant, but it's more that I give up the Psychic as well if I'm doing Arbitrary Octarius. So I get a bit frustrated where I can't do like a, a teleport and then uh, shoot and do psychic powers, et cetera, and rod. The other problem is that the warp time spell, the temporal surge, of course, it happens in the psychic phase, which means it's after when you want to rod. So that mobility that you mentioned, Steve, isn't actually super helpful in achieving uh, rod. Right. It requires a little bit more planning. Yeah, yeah, fair call. All right, so I actually have a, a quick question here. Um I love I love the plan that you you've laid out here. Uh, I think it, it actually makes me more excited about Thousand Suns than I was uh, forty minutes ago. But I do have a question. Do you think that this is at all dependent on the mission? Um, I know some missions obviously get played less than others. At least here in North America, we I definitely play scouring at tournaments a lot less than I play retrieval. Um, <laughs> do you think that uh, it works on online? Do you ever get worried that like on something like the scouring being a little lower on damage output to be tanky and have you know cheek objective plays is that worth it when the scouring kind of just puts you both in the middle and says go um so specifically focusing on the scouring that's a really interesting question because the scouring is almost invariably removed from tournament packs here in australia um i can't say that i have played the scouring at any event since the edition came out um i'm just trying to think back years now Mm -hmm. so uh, for, for me um, that's not super on my radar. I have been playing some TTS events, uh, and I recently actually played um, Don Husen on TTS, and we did play the scouring, and I didn't find that my damage was lacking in that particular game because one of the things that T-Suns do very, very well, um, look, they don't do damage excellently, but what they do have is bulk amounts of AP2, AP3 shooting. And in missions like the scouring, people are often left um, hung out to dry. It's more about having the appropriate plan. So when I've played the scouring on TTS, which I've done a number of times, um, the approach to that mission in particular will be rather than take, uh, rather than be aggressive, 
I will take really defensive secondaries and force my opponent to come to me and then sort of hit them with approaching 200 AP2, AP3 bolt gun shots, which is normally more than enough to clear their obsec. And then once the obsec is cleared, not necessarily all of their important units, then I can start doing the plan that I mentioned before, kind of without interruptions. When you've got, you know, 110 obsec wounds and your opponent has zero, the mission's very easy to achieve. Um, other missions in general, I don't really find um, problematic. Uh, the hold two missions, uh, so, you know, vital and overrun, et cetera, they're my absolute jam. I love those missions so much. Um, and in those particular missions, the primary domination is really reinforced. Yeah, on those missions, as long as you've got a ton of obsec bricks, which well, let's read the list again. Um, <laughs> honestly, those, those lists are so well there, and you have enough strength that you can really get forward, start touching things, start contesting objectives, uh, you know, take their score down. So I can totally see, you know, over on vital. Um, and I honestly, that's an interesting point about the scouring because, frankly, we don't really play it here either. At least, um, you know, in North America, at the Games Workshop events, uh, they specifically excluded the scouring, even though yep. it was an eight-round event. They uh, they just they doubled up on a different thing and they excluded, uh, you know, the scouring and overrun. Um, I think I've only played the scouring once or twice at most this edition at an actual two-day event. Yeah. So. Honestly, if you don't have to plan for it, one, that's a perfectly good answer because most events usually put their uh, missions out uh, in advance. They do, yeah. And even then, I could still see your army working on the scouring more often than not. I don't think it's bad at it. Just seems like the one that would challenge your play style the most. But, you know, Thousand Suns are a dynamic army. There is a lot of play here. You're a very experienced player. You'll probably find a way around it anyway. Can I ask uh, how important terrain is for you? Do you need lots of terrain to make this work um, so that you've got places to hide and, and do your stuff? Yeah, so that that's obviously very uh, matchup dependent. Um, I, you know, for example, I found that when I'm playing into Drakari, I prefer lighter tables, but when I'm playing into armies like Buggies or uh, even Admech, I prefer denser tables, which is pretty obvious. Um, yeah. For me, the terrain is important. The most important thing uh, is actually light cover. Um, more so, more so than obscuring. I actually found in a lot of situations. If I'm playing on maps where it's reasonably easy for me to get light cover on big, um, big percentages of my army whilst contesting objectives, people are kind of overwhelmed with target priority choices. One thing I mentioned before about sort of sending a Rubik Rune unit forwards and then putting all the buff spells on them, even though it's hard to shift, that doesn't give your opponent any chance to make the wrong choice. If, if they've only got one unit to shoot, they're only going to shoot one unit. They're only going to hit one unit. So oftentimes when I'm playing games against um, more balanced armies, and I'm looking here at like Death Watch armies with Dreadnoughts uh, and a few other um, lists that have quite potent directional shooting, I'll actually bring a few units out or even um, a Chaos Rhino might poke its head around a corner because they've got a 5 of Invo too sort of make people make weird choices. And the light cover really doubles down on the durability uh, of these units. You know, Terminators with a one-up save base or a zero-up save against damage one means that I'm all but ignoring AP1 and 2, uh, which is quite relevant to all variants of Space Marines. Uh, but also, you know, when we're looking at um, a lot of admech shooting and things too, it, it comes up quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. It it's uh, it's so interesting hearing you talking about this army, man. Because I'm I'm trying to think. Okay, what do I do here? What do, what do I throw at it? How do I come up against it? And obviously, in part two, John is going to hit you with some questions that uh, you know are too big for my brain. But um, 
Uh, one thing I was wondering, because I have had this happen against other armies, uh, when you're able to bring bodies back, you were talking about, you know, being able to charge onto objectives to take them away, but sometimes you can just put models down and take objectives. Is that ever a thing that you're able to to do to uh, just, you know, grab your primary, grab objectives off people? Your bodies are obsec, someone kills part of a unit, you bring a couple back, boom, I'm on that objective now. Absolutely. Um, the other really cheeky thing uh, about the time flux power, which, um, John, I'd we could, we could honestly have a deep dive discussion about this alone. The time flux psychic power specifically doesn't have a clause in it stating you have to be more than an inch away from enemy models. So you can do some really, some really interesting jank with that, which I assure you I have abused and used very frequently in my tournament games. So you can do things like, uh, fall back from combat and then another squad casts the power on you for you to actually tag separate units. You can also do it to um, achieve try points like wrapping a model to stop them falling back. Or like you mentioned before, you can use it to um, just get on an objective to get that last model or an extra model. Um, what happens quite a lot is, and this happens very frequently actually, is people will, but for reasons, I'm not quite sure why it happens, but it is definitely a trend that I've noticed. When people are playing um, missions, they'll put like one, maybe two, let's say you're playing Drakari and they've got five-man rack squads, they'll put one or two of the racks on the objective, not five. Um, I, like, just seems happens quite a lot. I'm not really sure why. Um, and in response to that, if I've got a little four or even a five-man unit of Rubik Marines, because people will kill some and then there'll be a few left, you can warp time them, restore one, restore two models, and you find that you outnumber people, even if they have all five on the objective. So that comes up a lot. One thing you did mention that we were going to come back to was the, and you've just brought it up there, so let's touch on it now, is the, is the, the big squads of rubrics. Um, and, and is that why, just for durability, because you're again doubling down on this, you've got to kill all of them to get through the unit and get your points for it or get you off objectives. Is that why the, the bulk squads? Yeah, so bulk squads, but also I think that stranglehold is a more valuable secondary than engage. That that's more a, a personal preference, and you'll find that most of my tournament lists will play stranglehold. Uh, it's just some, it's a secondary that I really really like um, because if you're winning stranglehold, you're winning the primary, and then you win. It's a very simple approach to the game, but rather than engage, which rewards you for being in no man's land or nowhere, I find stranglehold really rewards you for being in the place you want to be. So the big squads really double down on that, uh, but also a five-man Rubik Marine squad, um, I know this might sound a bit counterintuitive, but a five-man Rubik Marine squad is actually less than half of the durability of a 10-man squad because you always have a chance for dice spiking when you've got five up in bows and decent armor saves. And also you are really doubling down on the value of Fearless because there's almost kind of this... Fearless is a lot less common, I think, in this edition of 40K compared to previous. And I find there's definitely a mindset where people kill eight models and sometimes they leave them alone like they don't expect them to do anything and then i have a turn and then i have another turn and it, oh, it's a six-man squad now uh now it can go back and hold objectives uh it, it yeah it, it's really valuable to have the big squads it's interesting because some armies you take out eight of the guys in a 10-man squad and that that unit becomes a whole lot less effective but you're able to bring a couple of guys back they've still got their psychic abilities uh you know they're, they're still getting you that objective so they're still doing the job you need them to do yeah no, I actually want to kind of revisit uh, uh, real quick before we wrap this up. Uh, you said, uh, is it warp flux that doesn't re require you end outside of an inch? Uh, time flux. Time flux. Time flux. Oh, so that's the one where you grow a model back? Yes, that's the Cult of Time specific spell. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that is uh, that is really interesting. You know, any... Mm, 
I'm already like I'm already thinking of all the jank. That is uh, oh yeah, there's that, so right. that much would be jank another, you can That'd do. be a 50 minute episode right there. <laughs> um, I'm already like I'm reminiscing about devout push uh, from a month ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get right there, and oops, suddenly you're in. Hundred percent. And um, I actually found it really valuable. For example, um, against uh, I know it's not super prevalent, but armies like Tau or even Admech and a few other games where. I knew that the Overwatch would be particularly potent, especially for only a very small squad of Marines, or even if my Terminators have been really damaged. But if I move, advance, or and even move again, so you Terminators, a 10-inch move plus D6, if I'm within four inches, I know that I can heal a model and be in combat, avoiding Overwatch, tying up units, being really annoying. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, man, I hate you more and more the, the more we talk. The more I think about, the more I think about having I can to play an army like this. Awesome. Uh. <laughs> As a Space Wolves player, I'm like, it's just not fair. So um, one, one of the things I wanted to ask again, as John mentioned, we're going to wrap it up soon but uh, and get into the real juicy stuff in, in part two of this. But is there anything now that you've played a few games with this, you said the list at the beginning, the list is relatively settled, but is there anything you miss having uh, or you're thinking about putting in, are there any big changes that you can see yourself making in the next little while? Uh, yep. Uh, I, I've found the Scarab Occult Terminators to be more valuable than the Rubik Marines. Uh, consistently, I've found that having an obsec fearless Terminator brick that's good in shooting and melee, it's not really anything they don't do, um, is a bit more valuable than the Rubik Marines who often get bogged down in combat, even with basic choices like you know, incursors or infiltrators and stuff. Um so I'm probably going to be looking at uh, teching into probably an even smaller army, uh, probably with more Scarab Occult Terminators is where I'm going to be looking. Can I ask, for a, a unit of 10 of those Terminators, what is the points cost there? So they, they, clock, they clock in with all of the upgrades, excluding the um, specific like psychic upgrades. They come in at uh, 430 points. And that unit has... It, it, it hits in combat like Blade Guard Veterans, so it's got... 10 blade guard veterans in combat which is nothing now in the current meta that would be considered over the top but for a unit that's not there to actually do melee it can shift a 10-man squad of marines for example without much worry um it shoots with you know 32 ap2 bolt gun shots followed by 10 shots of strength 5 ap3 with the soul reaper cannons and then four pseudo crack missiles that do d3 missiles each uh d3 damage each rather so it shoots very well it hits very well it's fearless and it's obsec there's not really much that i don't like about the scarab occult terminators it's it's a surprising thing when you see a list like yours you look at it on the table and you don't actually i mean there's a lot of small shots you don't look at it and see a massive shooting army there's just so much of it and that neg too that's a killer it, it's really good and um one thing that i've actually heard uh, a lot of people talk about is that in australia um there's probably more horde lists than um in the northern hemisphere and, I, and i'd agree with that there's a stratagem that t-suns have called soul reap where if you're shooting at a unit with more than 10 models each soul reaper cannon doubles their shots so <laughs> that's one cp you're then combining that with a one cp stratagem for every bolt gun to shoot an extra shot and then you i've got plenty of cp i, I can do this then two CP plus one to wound. So you're finding that a single 10-man squad of Terminators shoots, you know, uh, 20 shots at strength five AP3, and then eight models with five shots, so 40 more shots at strength four AP2. Then you're talking 60 shots that auto-kill guardsmen, hitting on twos with psychic powers and rerolls, and then wounding on twos as well. I can theoretically clear like 60 Hormagaunts or whatever in a turn without really batting an eyelid with just a single squad, so. Disgraceful disgusting all right 
John, do you have anything else before we wind it up? You know, I actually have a ton, but I think we're going to have to save that one for part two here. Okay, very good. <laughs> well, listen, uh, unless there's anything else, that's part one. And I feel, I feel like we are really just getting started. There's so much else to talk about. So, folks, if you haven't already, head over to theartofwar40k.com and sign up so you can get the second half of every chat, and especially this one. It's going to be so good. So much great content instantly available for five ninety five a month. In the second part of the conversation, John and Liam are going to cover the tactics and plans against other armies and archetypes. So if you want to know how to play Thousand Suns or you want to know how to play against Thousand Suns, well, you could spend the next 10 games and three tournaments trying to figure it out or just tune into part two with the best players in the world and they'll take you through it. That sounds like a good deal. Uh, oh, Liam, shucks. John, thank you for, for being here for part one. Um, I appreciate you guys being here and, and uh, we'll get set up and go for it in part two. Folks, if you're a subscriber, we'll see you real soon. If not, for John Lennon and Liam Hackett, I'm Steve Joel. Thanks for listening. This is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.